Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this day that we can cease from our work, gather together as your people, and hear from your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that as your word is brought forth this morning, that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would think our thoughts, that your words would be mine, that you would bend our wills to your own, and you would take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned at the welcome, you know, this is the one day of the year we step back and we say, what's important to us? And we declare it to one another and to our friends that are potentially interested. And so we kick off our, all our fall activities. Our small groups are all going this week, and it's an exciting time of year for us. The kids are back at school, and we hope we find within one another a fellowship with a compelling community. Because I think spiritual emptiness is a universal disease in our culture. You know, I think at some point, every single one of us lay our heads on the pillow and say, there's got to be something more than this. Because you get up in the morning, you go to work, get off of work, you go home, take the kid to practice, come back home, grab a bite to eat, and you go to bed. Get up the next day, you get up, you go to work, get off of work, you get dressed, take the kid to his game, or her game, come home, grab a bite to eat, and you go to bed. You get up the next day, you go to work, you come home from work, you take the kid to their piano lessons and then to their practice, you come home, you grab a bite to eat, and you go to bed. Then on Saturday night, you have a party, and today, football's back! This is living, you think. But I want to share with you, and some of our friends here will share with you, that, you know what? That's not living. That's existing. And life in Christ is more than just existing, even though that describes some of our lifestyles at the present time. I encourage you to join with me by opening up your Bibles to the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. If you're visiting with us, I encourage you to look, just look back at the bulletin. That text is there for you. Because what we're going to see in this text, and what's important for us on this kickoff Sunday, is going beyond just knowing the Bible is true. That was last year. Last year on kickoff Sunday, we established completely for the whole year, we can believe it and it's true. In other words, Jesus, the 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 letters and the writings about Jesus are not legend. They're eyewitness testimony. You could take it as reliable. So that when the Bible says something happened, it really happened. And if you weren't here last year or you remember that, I encourage you, you can go on your phone and download the Christchurch podcast. It's right there. Christchurch West Shore. We're the only one in the country. All right. And uh, just download the podcast and look back in the archives. Last year's kickoff Sunday message. It's there the Bible and its, and its reality in our lives. Uh, if that's too much technology for you, just go to the website and click on sermons. 
and scroll down, and you can find it there as well on SoundCloud. It's all there. And so what we're doing this year is we're moving on from whether or not it's true to what difference does it make in our daily lives? What does it mean to talk about the Bible as being authoritative? And so what we did learn in this passage is that the Bible has authority, why that's a good thing, and how that works out in our lives. That's what we're going to learn, okay? The Bible is authority, why that's a good thing, and why that's a good thing in our lives. Looking at 2 Peter verses 12 through 15, what we discover, the whole message of Peter, he's trying to reach out to the early church. This is a first century letter. It went around the Roman Empire, okay? It wasn't written to a particular group of people. And this is, after all, Peter. He's the one who denied Jesus three times. And he came out at the day of Pentecost and preached a mighty sermon because he was forgiven by the Lord of all that, you know, that stuff that he denied him of. And he's been mightily used of God ever since then. So he writes this letter in about 63 A.D. because weird teachings are going around the church at this time and he wants to make sure that the church is the church. A group of people who love one another, love the Lord, and are compelling community to their communities no matter where they're found. And he says in verse 12, though I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know you have them or are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I is in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. See what Peter's doing? Remind, reminder, recall of what? The truth. That truth can be known, is what he's saying. And I know in our culture, there's there's those of you here gathered today that really might struggle with that. But I want to encourage you. This revelation of Jesus Christ in his own words, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you want to know God, all you got to do is look to the person working of Christ. And you know, so many people in our culture would say, well, that can't be true. All roads lead to heaven. Well, I would ask you, what vantage point do you hold that you can make that claim? If all roads lead up to the mountaintop of heaven, where are you standing? What supernatural experience are you declaring to me that you can make that to be claimed to be true when all other worldviews say they're the way? Because when you say there's no such thing as truth, what you are really saying is that it's true that there's no such thing as truth. Therefore, What you're saying isn't true. Okay? And it's important for us to know that truth claims are all over the place. And we we don't let anybody pin you down by saying, well, that's just exclusive. Well, you're excluding me by by disagreeing with me. It's okay. We can still have a cup of coffee together. But the reality is in our culture and in Peter's culture, We want to remind one another of the reminder and recall one another of the truth. Because Peter knows his time is short. 
And so let's look at this text. That, that first of all, that the Bible has authority. And Peter reminds them in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So there's two sets of sources that Peter is calling to the church. He's saying, first of all, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Has anybody ever told you what you believe is a myth or a fable? That the Bible is a fable or a myth? Well, it never says that about itself, by the way. And Peter is saying, no, you can trust, number one, the New Testament. Because he's talking about the eyewitnesses. Well, who are the eyewitnesses? Well, it's him. It's Peter and John and James who were there at the Mount of Transfiguration, which he speaks about in verse 17. For we had received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He's recalling for them the transfiguration, when Jesus was literally transfigured before them. And he's saying, I saw it. And not just me and James and John, guys, but also, by this time in AD 63, Matthew has been written, Mark has been written, Luke has been written, John is about to be written, but the, the letters of John are circulating around the church, by the way. And he's saying you can trust these sources because, number one, Peter, Matthew, Luke, not Luke, but John are eyewitnesses themselves, and they wrote. And Mark and Luke interviewed directly the eyewitnesses so that Luke could say, I write these things to you, most excellent Theophilus, so you can have certainty of the things you have been taught. Ancient literature isn't written like that. This is unique. Why? Because it happened. He's saying you can trust these people. And he's also saying that, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths, he's also talking about the prophets, you know, in the Old Testament. Further down, verse 19, and we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I know some of you might be thinking, well, you know, I, I like the New Testament, but I don't like all that Old Testament stuff. It's, it's just kind of obsolete. But what Peter is saying, well, no, in no uncertain terms, and in verses 19 through 21, that it's something completely reliable, and he goes further, and you would do well to pay attention to it. So, of course, Christians interpret the old in light of the two, of the, of the, the old in light of the new. Um, you wouldn't read a novel that way. You wouldn't go to the last third of a novel and read it without reading the first part. And so what Peter is pressing on here is that the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, are just as reliable as the eyewitness accounts that they're receiving right now. Because, why? Verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
That's a remarkable statement. And our culture would say, well, the Bible's fine. Shakespeare's fine. Charles Dickens is fine. Tom Clancy is fine. You, know, you have your interpretation and I have mine. But Peter is saying, no, that's not the case. This is, this is not produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, that God can, being sovereign God, can produce people who have been prepared their entire lives to sit down and write what he wanted to convey. Every word, therefore, because he bore on them in this way. They're human. They live in a culture. They have personalities. But they wrote exactly what God wanted them to write. So when you read the Bible, you're not reading your interpretation, Peter is saying. You're reading what God says. And as a matter of fact, that's not just Peter's opinion. That's also Jesus' opinion. We had Bob Reed from Luke 24 where he was walking on the Emmaus roads. And at the very end of that passage, Jesus interpreted for them all the things concerning himself in Moses and the prophets. That phrase, Moses and the prophets, is similar to what Peter is saying. It's the Old Testament. It's from Genesis all the way through Malachi. That Jesus is saying all of that concerns him. That's Jesus' view of the Old Testament. And it's all true. What he's saying here is that when Moses is communicating to God's people about the Ten Commandments, it's just as authoritative as God speaking to Moses about, directly about the Ten Commandments. What's Jesus' first reaction every time he was assaulted by the devil? What did Jesus say? It is written. And he quotes Scripture to him. Jesus is thinking about Scripture at a time like that. When he is about to be arrested and taken to the cross, into the Sanhedrin, he looks at Peter who's taken out his sword and he says, Peter, put your sword down. How can the prophecy be fulfilled if we don't go through with this? He's thinking about scripture. He's on the cross and he cries out from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out scripture at a time like that. It was the operating principle of his life and he faced all of life with Scripture. And so, so many people will say something like, well, I'm a Christian, and, you know, but I don't take the Bible literally. Now, if I give them the benefit of the doubt, and just to let you know, I don't, um, I start to ask them questions. Well, you're a Christian, and if Jesus is right, then you read poetry as poetry. You read narrative as narrative. You read... Uh, prophecy is prophecy. You read apocalyptic literature as apocalyptic literature, right? What do you mean by literal? Because that's not what they mean. What they mean by that statement is, I can accept some things in the Bible, but I can't accept other things in the Bible. I just pick and choose what I want to believe for myself because it's oppressive, it's regressive, whatever reason that might give. But here's the problem. If you say you're a Christian and rejecting the core operating principle in Jesus' life, how does that work? 
You're following a Jesus of your own imagination. And that Jesus never existed, by the way. There's no historian on the face of the planet who would say the Jesus of your imagination was real. Therefore, what you're doing doesn't make sense. So why should we trust the Bible's authority? Well, all the scripture testifies of itself. Peter speaks of it. Jesus speaks of it. And extra-biblical sources speak of it. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is authoritative in the Christian's life. Secondly, why is that a good thing? Well, here in our Western culture, for example, you know, we're taught that I'm my own authority. I'm my own person. You know, you can be who you want to be. You can do what you want to do. You're an independent spirit and soul. And that's interesting. Because verse 19, Peter says, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining into a dark place. A dark place. Peter is describing our world as a dark place, that our culture is dark, that my heart is dark. There's a certain darkness that is dark. And our lives, basically, if we don't acknowledge that, can become our own illusion. If you think that you're determining how to live your life on your own, what you're actually doing is you're being controlled by your feelings, your intuitions, or your culture, or your friends. And the reason that the Bible should have authority in our lives is a good thing, because one of these forces will be your authority, and they won't be as good as the Bible. Take, for example, your feelings and intuitions. That I do what feels right to me. Right? Well, you know how that is. Feelings are like this. And your 15-year-old self thought your 12-year-old self was an idiot. Your 23-year-old self will think your 15-year-old self an idiot. Your 40-year-old self will look back at your 23-year-old self and say, Oh, man, poor Gene, you know. Your 85-year-old self will look back at your 40-year-old self and go, What a fool. And if God should grant you so long a life, your 110-year-old self will look back at your 85-year-old self and go, what a fool. So that means whatever age you are currently, you're a fool. If you're running yourselves by your feelings and intuitions. Okay? Because if I could put you in a time machine and you could go sit back in your great-great-grandparents' parlor... You'd be appalled at what they're saying. You would be shocked. This is my family? And guess what? If your great, great, great grandchildren could sit in your family room and listen to you and your family talk, guess what? They are going to be appalled at what you say and what you believe because every generation thinks it's more enlightened than the previous one. Right? No, my friends, that's the case if you go by your feelings and your intuitions. You can't follow them because they're like sinking sand. Next, you, you run by your culture, by the way. You do. You know, for example, if I took you to the Far East, 
Middle East, at parts of Africa. It's shame and honor cultures. You have a young man who's walking along and he looks at his heart and he sees two different, very, very different feelings. Number one, he feels aggression when people wrong him. And he knows in his culture he should act on that. No one crosses me. You're going to pay if you cross me because I have to represent my family. It's an honor thing. And that's a good thing, by the way. Now, another feeling is my sexual desire. Well, that doesn't fit with my social norms. Therefore, I should just oppress it. But if I go down to Ohio City on a Friday night or East 4th Street on a Friday or Saturday night and I take a similar-aged young man and he has the feelings of aggression and sexual desire, someone crosses him, he doesn't think, oh, I'm going to pay that person back. He's going to think, I need therapy. That, that I need anger management, and I need to go to human resources to help me out with that. But I see an attractive young woman, oh, I'm going to act on that, because that's me, right? See what's happening here? That's not you. That's your culture. That's the way this culture is. You're, you're a puppet. No, my, it doesn't work that way. We're all shaped by our culture. Or thirdly, we're, we're, it's a good thing because we're shaped also by our friends. You remember what you dressed like when you were 15? Right? Your hairstyles at 15, 13. You know, how embarrassed you are to look back at those pictures. Right? Right? All your friends look just like you, more than likely. Teenagers, there's hope. You know? You look great, by the way. But the reality is, you're not your own authority. You need someone to come alongside and validate you. You need someone to come alongside and say, great job, well done, good and faithful one. We all do. And we wait for someone to clap for us. And some of us are just waiting for our friends to clap. And if they don't clap, we don't do it. Even if it's the right thing to do. No, you're not your own authority. Therefore, it's really good that the Bible can be yours intellectually, emotionally, and it's timeless. St. Augustine wrote 1,500 years ago in the city of God. It's a great book. He's writing against all the narratives that are creeping into the church in the 5th to 6th century. And it's fascinating read because as you read the city of God you think to yourself I believe in the same God he does I I worship the same God that he does and the reality is I only know of the people that he's refuting in the city of God about them because it's St. Augustine who's mentioning them they have now become so obsolete, nobody knows who they are, but everybody knows who St. Augustine is. Why? It's timeless. Because of the truth built on the gospel. So my friends, all opposing views of the Bible will be obsolete tomorrow. And so the Bible's authority in our lives is a good thing. So third, how does this all work out? How does this work out day by day in our lives? It works out day by day in our lives three ways. Number one, 
by our will. Number two, with our heart. And number three, by our practice. By our will, our heart, and our practice. Number one, it works through our will. In other words, there's days you just get up and you have to obey the Lord when you don't feel like it. You came to church on Sunday morning at an inconvenient time and you're missing the pregame shows. Right? It's going to cost you. There's some things you do just because the Lord asks you to do it. You know, none of us goes and buys a brand new car and we come home and we say of that brand new car, I'm just going to take care of this car my way. I'm not going to get the oil changed to 5,000 miles. I'm not going to get it tuned up. I'm just going to drive it till it's done. And it will be done in about 12,000 miles. We don't do that in any other relationship that we have other than the one that we have with God. My friends, our will is all we got sometimes. Because you're not going to feel like walking with the Lord at times. You're not going to feel like reading the Bible. You're not going to feel like praying. You're not going to feel like coming to church on Sunday mornings. You're not going to feel, but the reality is, as it costs us, and cars break down at inconvenient times, so our lives break down at inconvenient times, and our walks break down at inconvenient times, but the reality is, in the long run, it's the wise thing when our walk with the Lord. And by the way, if you hate what I'm saying in this, don't raise children. Because as a parent, you have to tell your child things that they don't want to do and you have to make them do it, right? You stop your kids from running into the street. And if a 35-year-old has infinite more wisdom than a 3-year-old, how much more wisdom does the God of the universe have over a 55-year-old? Now, once you say you believe in Jesus and follow him, there will be times where you say, I don't care what my feelings are, I just need to obey. In every aspect of my life. So that's the will. Secondly, it also works out in our heart. For the Bible says of itself in Hebrews that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the heart. You know, because we've all heard of some Christians who say, Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. It's over. Well, it's not that simple, right? We all got questions. And here at Christ Church, being an Anglican church, we say, you know what? Questions are a good thing. The problem with our culture is you ask the questions and you don't go to the authority of the Scripture. And we're saying, come on, we'll look at this together. We'll wrestle with it together. And that's what we do. Because the Bible is like, it works like the wax on an old way of sealing an envelope. When you used to send a letter, you used to seal it with a wax seal on the back of the envelope. Okay? That was way before my time. Trust me. But, you took a piece of wax, you put a candle flame to it, it started to melt, you drop it on the back of the envelope, you take your signet ring, and your family would have a signet ring, and you'd press it into the the wax to seal the envelope so that when the letter was received, they would look at the seal and they'd say, oh, Bob wrote me a letter. Wonderful. I know that. And Alex, Archibald Alexander is the first professor of theology at Princeton University. Wrote 
this in 1812, that the Bible is like the wax. And if you just bring the, the truth of the Bible, is like the wax. And if you just bring the signet ring to the wax, one of two things happen. Without the fire, either it superficially creates a copy of the ring shaping a nominal Christian. A person who never goes deeper. They say they believe, but it doesn't have any effect in their lives whatsoever. Or it creates a suicidal person because the wax is, you press the ring so hard onto the wax that it cracks and that person just runs away. But the Bible is the candle flame that conforms the wax and helps fall it into place and seal the envelope so they can be sent. My friends, Christianity is the only God who claimed he was God. He comes to earth and goes under authority. We have the only divine authority who went under divine authority. He obeyed his parents. Jesus obeyed the Bible. He obeyed his heavenly Father's will when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus Christ went to the cross for you. He went to the cross for me. Because we, each and every one of us, are sinners to the core. We're rebels. We want to run our lives our own way. And God came in the person of Jesus Christ and lived a life perfectly under the Father to be the perfect sacrifice. Died the death that we deserve to die. And then proved he was God by rising from the dead and ascending to the Father. And because of that, we can trust him. And he leaves, that leaves us with a choice. I can live under your authority, Lord Jesus, or I can live under mine. Which one do you want? You see, that's an authority you can trust. Nobody's ever loved you like Jesus. Nobody's given up what Jesus for you, given up what Jesus has given up for you. Why wouldn't you want to trust an authority like that? It works out in our will. It works out when it warms our hearts like that. And it works out in our day-to-day -day practice. Returning back to verse 12 of chapter 1, uh, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. We remind each other so that when I'm dead and gone, you will recall the truth of the love of God for you and for me. And we recall what it means to walk with the Lord. We need one another. You need daily Bible reading and prayer. You need to come on Sundays to hear the word. You need to hear, receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. You need to sing the songs. You need one another. That's living. That's what we're about. Even in the midst of our busyness of our culture. May I suggest you find such living by living under the authority of God's word with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us in this way. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can respond in love to this revelation, and we thank you that we can trust your word, and we can trust the authority, even at times when we don't understand it. 
And I pray, Lord, that you would just pour out your Spirit upon us right now. That if there be any one of us who are cold, hearted in our walk with you, that you would truly take our hearts, set them on fire. We confess that we are sinners. And we ask forgiveness for all our sin. And we give you our lives now to do with as you wish, O Lord. For your honor and glory, for you are truly our Savior. You are our friend and you are our King. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.